Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, fourth chapter of Ephesians. We're returning to our study here. If you're using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 815. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue our study in Ephesians of viewing the church through spiritual eyes. Many years ago, I had the opportunity of traveling with a ministry team. And much like our teams that we send out from International Baptist College and Seminary, there's the process and preparation of selecting, uh, coordinating outfits and wardrobes that will be part of, of the team. Uh, Our selection process involved taking a trip to another state, to a clothing supplier, a wholesaler, where we could, they would pick out and then uh, we could try on different things and and get them at wholesale prices. Uh, There was one particular team member who was in charge of the clothing selection. And so this person was the go-to person uh, when when it came to what was fashionably acceptable and appropriate. Well, after a while, I got curious about some of the rules of what was acceptable. So I picked up and read a copy of the book, John Molly's book, Dress for Success. And I remember the day that I was reading that and my investment of time in reading this book paid off. The person had come to me and pointed out that that my socks were the wrong color because they didn't match my shoes. And I replied that according to Dress for Success, the socks could match either the shoes or the pants. And he said, well, really, they should match the shoes. I said, well, not according to Dress for Success. And I remember the sense of satisfaction that I had finally overcome my perceived fashion illiteracy and was able to hold my own in a style discussion by referencing Dress for Success. And yes, it really was as petty as it sounds. Now, I I realize today, while there are guidelines for wearing socks, they don't have to match the shoes or the slacks. Uh, There's a great variety of socks that are available. But there are still some rules. But you know, there's a whole industry that's dedicated to fashion and determining what is acceptable and what is in season. The in colors and styles change. And things that were in style last year are then out of style this year or maybe out next year. But you know, when a person puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is to be a change in their life fashion, their manner of living. Their, the last section of Ephesians 4 provides the appropriate attitudes and actions that Christians are to wear. And if we are to dress spiritually, there are some spiritual fashions that are necessary. And this morning, I'd like us to consider the question, are you spiritually dressed for success? When we look at God's Word, because the pattern that we find at the end is that there are, are things that are to be put off and other things that are to be put on. That's the general language that's used in verses 17 through 24 of the idea of putting off garments and putting on other garments. And it tells us we're to do this because we're changing our thinking, that there's a different attitude, there's a different mindset that comes. 
The, the passage concludes then with some very specific aspects of what we're to remove and how to replace it. Now, as many of our college students are coming back to kind of give us the context of where we are in Ephesians, Ephesians 4 begins the practical application of fir- the first three tra- chapters of doctrine. Chapters 1 through 3 are the doctrine that really lays out God's plan from before the creation of the world that he would redeem sinners and put them together into a body, the church. This new humanity that, that Jews and Gentiles would be placed together in a new creation. And that's the mystery that is revealed in chapter 3. The realization that the church not only reveals God's manifold, multifaceted wisdom here on earth, but it's a testimony that's out of this world. It's to principalities and powers in heavenly places that that the church is a testimony to angels of God's goodness and mercy. And the practical display of God's glory in the church, which is how chapter 3 ends, is seen in our unity as a body. That's how chapter 4 begins. How we walk, our conduct, our living, that as believers, that our unity with other Christians, that, that God has chosen us and put us together in a body, we don't get to pick all the body parts. But we're to dwell in unity in the local church. And this unity is protected, as the first several verses tell us, by a spirit of gentle humility and loving patience. And we read that also in Philippians this morning, that that attitude of Christ. Chapter 4 goes on to tell us that we are gifted by the Spirit for the edification and stability of the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the parts, we're the members of his body, and so we're to learn to walk in a new way of living. And so Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19, describe the thinking process of the unsaved. That before we were saved, our our thinking was really out of touch with reality. The word is futility of the mind. We were blind or darkened to the truth. There was moral rebelliousness, past feeling, and motivated by sensuality, they've given themselves over to lawlessness, to lewdness. But then it tells us that as believers, that's not how we learn Christ. In fact, in verse 20, it says, you have not learned Christ. So Christ is the subject that we're to learn. Verse 21, the first part tells us that Christ is also the teacher, that we have heard him. And verse 21, the latter part tells us that he is the object or the atmosphere, the realm in which we are learning, that we are taught in Christ as the truth is in Jesus. And so then verse 24 indicates that believers are new creations, and new creations should act like new creatures. We need to have a different fashion. We need spiritual fashion sense. We're created in righteousness and true holiness. The holiness of truth is the idea in verse 24. And so what we had considered is salvation necessitates the transformation by putting away the old sinful pattern of life and exchanging it with Christ-likeness through the renewal of your mind. This is the pattern that we talked about, and we spent some time on this uh, several weeks ago. What we're going to see this morning is the latter part of this chapter, verses 25 and following, tell us what those sinful patterns are that are to be put off and gives us specifics of what we're to put on. And the change comes because of a change of thinking. It's not a moralism. Don't do this, do this. It's a change of thinking that motivates a change of living. 
And the truth is, while we would probably all intellectually acknowledge and probably agree that that change is needed, the truth is sometimes it's much more difficult because we're comfortable with some of the old ways. And so beginning in verse 25 and through the end of this chapter, we read of the specific actions and attitudes that need to change if we're going to be spiritually dressed for success. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 25. Let's look at God's infallible, errant, inerrant, life-giving word. Verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him that, who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would personally examine what we need to do to change, to have the, the fashion sense that brings honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk in that newness of life, and that you would be honored in Christ's name. Amen. What I want us to consider this morning is that the new life that comes at your salvation is demonstrated practically by how you interact with other believers. What we find in these verses are personal interactions. And learning Christ means that we are shaped by His teaching, we submit to His righteousness. It's calling us to adopt the values and reflect that He reigns in our lives. That our garments that we're wearing, our spiritual fashions will evidence that He is Lord of our life. But unfortunately, when we trust Christ, we still have ways of thinking and acting that, that are rather comfortable. We like to keep them. And, and it's sometimes difficult to try something new. But having the right spirit is far more important than having the right socks. New creations will display their new lifestyle by showing Christ-likeness. So let us consider the garments of godliness that we need to wear. The first thing we see is we're to put off lying and wear the truth. It says in, in verse 25 that we're to put away lying, the former life of deceit. Now if you remember back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2, it stated that at sal before salvation we walked according to the path of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience. This world is not a place of honesty. That's why when you have any documents, there are pages and pages trying to close all the loopholes. Because it's not an issue of honesty. And, and the, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, John 8, 44, Jesus reveals his character he says that he's the father of the children of disobedience and says that he was a liar from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. In fact, it says Satan is the father of lies. 
So clearly the garments of lying need to go in the trash. I mean, don't put them in goodwill, just throw them away. Because the form's deceit is not a form of godliness. Now, there are various forms of deceit. You know, obviously outright lying, dishonesty is prohibited by this. But the truth is there are a lot of subtle ways of deceptiveness and deceitfulness. Sometimes it's, it's exaggeration. You know, often done to build our case, or, but it builds barriers in communication and in relationships. In the 100% words, well, they always, they never. Well, those are, those are not statements that encourage unity. They invite resistance. Because you begin looking for what's the exception to that, that I can prove them wrong. Sometimes it's giving partial truth or insinuation that colors or slants the understanding, uh, gives a false impression. If you, know, you ask your teenager where they're going and they tell you one location, but they're really using that to get to another one. Well, that partial truth is a form of deceit. Withholding the truth from those who have a right to know. Now, it's not a lie to not tell everything you know. And it's not a lie to not tell somebody everything they want to know. I mean, that would create major problems in a school. When the student says, well, teacher, can you give me the answer for the upcoming test? Well, they didn't tell me, they lied. No, you don't have a right to know. There will come a time that you will know. Hopefully you'll know before the test. If not, you'll know afterwards. But sometimes there's a proper timing of that information. It's not a lie to make an honest mistake or to misspeak. I've heard people say, well, he lied to me when actually he just misspoke. There wasn't a malice. There wasn't an intent to deceive. Another form of lying is making excuses because we fail to acknowledge and accept personal responsibility. In fact, it says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive, we lie to ourselves. And if we say there is no sin in us, we make God a liar. It's a form of deceptiveness. So to make excuses, well, I didn't really have time to do that assignment, but you had time to play video games for hours. It's not a lack of time. So own it and, and understanding that. See, new life is based in truth. And that's what we saw back in verse 21. It says that, that the truth is in Jesus. And honesty is actually unusual in our culture. People are surprised by it. But as new creations, that ought to be the way of life because we are part of a different culture. We have a heavenly citizenship. And notice that the command doesn't just say, it goes beyond not telling lies. It says we must speak the truth. We must tell the truth. We must speak. So giving someone the silent treatment is actually violating this passage. If you're seeking to avoid dealing with the problem or punish somebody, then the silent treatment is sinful treatment. Because it says, put away lying, let each one speak the truth. How does this happen? Well, you know, what's wrong? Nothing. Well, it sounds like something might be wrong. Well, you should know. And if you don't know, I'm not telling you. Okay. Speak the truth. Verse 4, four, 15 of chapter 4 says, in love. <laughs> but we're to speak the truth to our neighbor. 
And that's what it says in this. It, it let everyone speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Because we're members one of another. The word member here is never used of an organization. The Greek term is, is not used of an organization. It's used of an organism. It speaks of the members of a body. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, are, are you building your spiritual family with loving honesty? Speaking the truth in love. Are you building your spiritual family with that loving honesty? John, John Chrysostom is a preacher from over 1,600 years ago. He was known as the golden mouth in his day. But he asked the question this way, if the eye sees a snake, does it lie to the foot? If the nose smells a deadly poison, does it lie to the mouth? His point is, why would you lie to your own body? We're members of one another. We are a spiritual family. The church is a body. It's not a club. And problems come when we view the relationships within the church as organizational rather than as a body, as an organism. That we are parts of the whole. Therefore, we have to work to solve problems in a way that honors the Lord. And the first thing that that entails is we have to put off that falsehood and wear edifying truth. The second one, though, is we have to put off sinful wrath and wear righteous anger. Now, it's interesting because if you notice in this verse, it actually reverses the order. It tells us what we're to put on and then what we're to put off. Be angry, but do not sin. And, and it's an interesting change that's taking place, that proper anger really means being angry at the right time for the right reason, with the, at the right object in the right way, under the right control and do it for the glory of God. And that's tough. You know, even if we have a righteous reason, it's often hard to keep it in the right perspective. But there is a place for righteous anger. But there's a very real subtle danger to view our anger as righteous when it's really just a bad temper. And so we have to understand this, that we can recognize unrighteous anger. There are several things that would indicate this. When anger becomes sinful, when several things are in place. Number one, if it's sinfully motivated. Anger is sinful when the thoughts behind it are sinful, when it's selfish. When, when our anger is not free from hurt feelings, which are often injured pride. When there's malice or desire to get even. It's sinful when God's goal is distorted. Righteous anger will accomplish a righteous purpose. When we lose control, you know, instead of counting to three, maybe you need to count to Ephesians 4 and then read it. When we attack the person rather than dealing with the problem, and it's also sin when it's allowed to linger. Notice what the, the rest of this verse says in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know, sometimes we hear the statement, you know, don't go to bed angry. Well, that is good advice, but if you wait till bedtime, you've already gone beyond what the passage indicates. It says don't let the sun go down. Sunset tonight is at 7.06. I mean, there's a time frame. The point of it is deal with it quickly. The day of anger ought to be the day of reconciliation rather than allowing it to foment. So the question we need to ask in application is, do you brood in anger and thus provide the devil a place for exploitation? 
It says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give place to the devil. You know, anyone can become angry. But to be angry at the right time for the right reason in the right way with the right degree, that takes spiritual control. That takes the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the misuse of anger is dangerous. It destroys relationships. It destroys work relationships. It destroys parent-child relationships. It destroys marriages. And it destroys churches. So we have to put off sinful wrath and wear that righteous anger. And we have to deal with it promptly because if we don't, Satan gets a foothold in our life. Satan loves to manipulate situations for his purpose. And remember, he's a liar. He colors our thinking. He clouds our perspective. Angry people tend to assume the worst of other people. But they give themselves the benefit of the doubt. And that attitude then allows for bitterness to develop. And bitterness gains traction and reconciliation becomes more difficult. Reconciliation ought to be sought as soon as possible. We need to put off that sinful wrath, seek that reconciliation, and use that righteous anger as a motivation to solve problems in a way that brings honor and glory to God. The third thing that we see in this passage is put off stealing and wear sharing. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. So he has something to give. Now, consider the audience that is receiving this letter. It's Christians. We we live in a day when, when people justify taking things that don't belong to them. Well, that person doesn't need it. Well, they have enough. Well, that organization has enough. No, your character demands that you put off stealing and put on Christ-likeness, which is sharing. This is written to people, Christians, at a time when there were no government safety nets. And, And many of them were probably slaves, and so there would be a temptation just for the sake of survival to take things and to justify it. Well, I need to feed my family. Well, they won't miss it, and we need it. And it's sad when Christians think that way. So do we meet our obligations? You know, do you pay bills in a timely manner? As a Christian, that ought to be our goal. That it's sad when Christians take advantage of other Christians or organizations and, and, and use their shared Christianity as an excuse because that's a garment that's to be thrown away. And it will not build unity. And the attitude is, is a change of thinking. You know, that's one reason we put our our offering in the service because it reminds us that our giving is part of our worship. And yet if you read the book of Malachi, the accusation was they had stolen from God. And they said, well, how did we steal from God? And Malachi responds in tithes and offerings. That we want to be faithful in our stewardship. And part of the problem comes when we start to think, well, you know, this belongs to me. I mean, how much of your income belongs to God? It should be all of it. And that we give part of it back to Him, but we seek to live for His glory with what He gives us. And if we don't think that way, how is our thinking any different than the unsaved? Are we still wearing that garment of their thinking? Notice that the change of attitude is now laboring with His hands for a different purpose because you can go from stealing to hard work and still be a covetous person. You know, I I really shouldn't steal. That's wrong. That's sin. Even the world looks down on that in in some cases. And and so I probably need to work hard, but I can still be a a selfish person. 
and just do it in a way that is not dishonest or stealing. But the change is the change of goal. So the question is, do you work diligently with the goal of generosity? Are you working with your hands diligently with the purpose of generosity? Notice the change of attitude here. Instead of stealing, the focus is on sharing. And instead of being covetous, the focus is on caring for others. So you can work in such a way, and that's a spiritual fashion. Seeking to provide for others that have needs. And, and primarily within the body of Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't help non-believers, but the context here and elsewhere in the New Testament is especially the importance we have to assist other believers. And that's why we, we have a benevolence fund. And we take those offerings. But the question we have to ask is, do we work diligently with the goal of being generous? No, it's not enough to just say the Lord will provide if we ignore how he provides. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a person will not work, they shouldn't eat. Now, it doesn't say if they cannot work, but it says if they will not. And neither idle hands or thieving hands are in fashion for a believer. If we're going to dress for spiritual success, both of those have to be put off. But not only should our hands be used for edification, so should our mouth. And that's the fourth thing that we see. Put off harmful talk and wear edifying grace words. It says, put off corrupt words. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. See, the mouth and the heart are connected. The Bible tells us in Matthew 12, 24, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the change of heart ought to result then in a change of speech. You know, sometimes we need to clean out our verbal closet. There are things that need to go, corrupt words that, that speak of that which is rotten. It's, it's, it's worthless. You know, we, most of us have had the unpleasant opportunity because of our Arizona summer heat of having to put something in the trash and there's other things that have been sitting in there. And the aroma is not very pleasant. There are times I'll take a bag of trash out and I'll, I'll hold my breath before I get to the trash can and then as I'm walking away because, you know, when, when something's in there and it starts rotting, that's the word that's being used here. That's the word for corrupt. It speaks of corrupt fruit, of rancid meat, of things that, that are garbage and the need to get rid of that. That's the, that's the type of speech that we need to throw in the trash and walk away. That the, the trash talk that stinks like an open tomb. In fact, that's the description in Romans 3.13. Their mouths are like an open tomb. What comes out is corrupt. The words that are destructive, these are words that tear down rather than build up. So the question we have to ask is, does your mouth as well as your hands benefit others? Because verse 28 tells us that our hands are to work and, and do what is good. Verse 29 tells us our mouth is also to produce what is good. So does our mouth as well as our hands benefit others? Is that what we are, are seeking to do? Are the, our words beneficial, not merely superficial? You know, sometimes we have to say things that are difficult. It's not just, oh, I only say things that are positive. Sometimes we have to deal with problems, but it needs to be with the goal of edification. 
It needs to be speaking the truth in love for the purpose of building up. They need to be grace words. They need to be words that will edify. And to edify others, you have to recognize the needs of others. Well, I just had to get it off my chest. No, that's thinking about you, not them. If you're seeking to build up, then you're going to be considering where they are and how best to approach this. We can't constantly be focusing on ourselves and thinking that our speech is going to be edifying. So are your words a vehicle that deliver God's grace when they arrive? Does your mouth, not just your hands, benefit others? I think that's the next slide. That we would have that that focus. Are your words that vehicle? Why is this important? Because the Holy Spirit, who is the divine agent of reconciliation and unity, is grieved by unwholesome words. That's what we see in this passage. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So if our words are not edifying, if they're divisive, because the Spirit is the one who gives the unity, then then we're causing problems. So reconciliation and unity are hindered by unwholesome words. It brings strife and disunity. And when a person hurts the unity of the body of Christ, they also grieve the Holy Spirit. A person who divides the body grieves the Spirit. That's why Romans 16, 17 says, Note those who cause division and avoid them. And then the last area that's addressed really is tied closely to our speech and also to anger because we're to put off sinful reactions and wear kind forgiveness. This is change that comes from the heart, from the inside, and then is seen outwardly as, as, we're put, as we're changing our thinking, we're putting off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, putting it away with all malice, and then putting on that be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. See, all of these areas that are, that are mentioned in verse 31 are areas uh, that are really reactions to interpersonal conflicts. They, they fail to speak the truth in love for the purpose of growth in Christ-likeness. So what are the sinful reactions that must be put off? Well, number one is bitterness. That's holding a grudge. It's having an irritable spirit. The, the perpetual animosity, a sour attitude, a resentfulness. That's, that's what bitterness is. It's wrath and anger. Those are really synonyms, but wrath tends to be the blowing up, the, the flashes of rage. The anger is more the slow burn, the smoldering anger that's always under the surface. You know, the, the person's always on edge. And, and you notice they, they can never laugh at something that's funny. There's just always this anger and 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 then they're very quick again to give themselves the benefit of the doubt but they always have the worst impression of others clamor these this is where it moves from the smoldering under the surface to the outbursts it's the the harsh contention the public quarreling the abusive speech the yelling the the flashes of losing temper that's the clamor slander that's speech that in, injures is closely tied to gossips, sharing unnecessary information with somebody who's not part of the problem or the solution. And it's done from a heart of malice. That's, the goal is to get even, to hurt somebody else, to tear down, not build up. 
These are the things that, these all have to be thrown away, put off, clean this out of the closet of our spirit. And instead, put on spirit-empowered actions. And these are listed then in, in the next verse, in verse 32. Be kind to one another. As God is kind. It says in Ephesians 2 verse 7 that he might show his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the character of God. Tender-hearted, compassionate. It's an inward affection that allows us, as, as verse 2 of this chapter says, to bear with others, to put up with other people in a, a bond of peacefulness. And that's really what it's speaking of. You know, long-suffering, bearing with one another that I can put up with them, not just because I grit my teeth, but there's actually a tender-hearted affection of wanting to see God work in their life and then to be forgiving. Bitterness is usually caused by an unwillingness to forgive. And that's why all of this comes together, that forgiveness is not based on what they deserve. Say, well, you know what they did. They don't deserve my forgiveness. And I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. It was he who knew no sin who became sin for me that I might receive his righteousness, his robes for mine. I got the best end of that deal. He took my robes and paid for my sin. I didn't deserve forgiveness. Even as God in Christ forgave you. See, forgiveness is treating other people like God treats them. Instead of treating them like Satan would treat them. Satan behaves toward other people as the accuser, as the liar, as, as the one who's seeking to destroy. And if that's a heart of bitterness, that's what bitterness seeks to do. To accuse and destroy. So do we forgive as God forgave us? That's what we're being asked. The question we need to ask to examine ourselves is, are you known as a forgiving person who is free from the characteristics of human wrath? When, when Christians are learning Christ, it means we're being shaped by Him. It means that we're looking to Him for our fashion sense. That if we want to know how to dress for spiritual success, we look to Christ and allow Him to shape our life. That His righteousness, adopting those fashions. You know, there are times, and I've talked about, we have to put off and put on. But the truth is, you know, with clothes, sometimes we have things that we know we need to get rid of, but we don't want to. I looked in my closet the other day, and I found this shirt. I can't tell you how long I have had this shirt. It's probably older than most of my kids, if not all of my kids. And, and I know I need to throw it out. I mean, it, the sleeves are, are tattered, it's raveling, the color's coming off. It's just comfortable. I'm allowed to wear it around the house. If I wear it in the backyard, my wife really doesn't want me to go through the gate. Okay, it's fenced in. And I have much better shirts than this. But I, I keep it because I like it. It's comfortable. I've worn it for years. It's familiar. But in reality, I know it should go. The truth is, some of these areas we know need to go. But we're comfortable responding with sinful anger, of coloring the truth, of, of presenting things in a way that they shouldn't be. So let me ask, do you have, number one, do you have a spiritual closet? Have you come to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And if you have, how's your spiritual wardrobe doing? 
you know, maybe you have some things like this that need to go. They need to be thrown away. And not because they're worn out, but because they're associated with the life before Christ. See, Jonathan Edwards, not the one who spoke for us, but the Puritan from before, said, Christians are Christ-like. None deserve the name of Christians, that, of Christians that are not so in their prevailing character. It would be strange if Christians should not be of the same temper and spirit that Christ is of and live so, that it is not they that live, but Christ that lives in them. That's what it means to be spiritually dressed in a way that will bring honor to the Lord. So let's evaluate our wardrobe. Let's look at these areas, and, and as you look at them, how are you doing in putting off the, the falsehood, sinful wrath, stealing, no matter how we justify it, harmful talk, sinful reactions? Maybe it's comfortable. Maybe you've been doing this for a long time. It needs to be put off. How are you doing with edifying truth, righteous anger, generous sharing, grace words, and Christ-like forgiveness? Are we dressed in a way that brings honor to the Lord? You know, what do we need to change in our spiritual fashion sense? There's a book about how to dress spiritually for success. It's this one. And we can learn what pleases Christ as we know the mind of Christ, as it's revealed in the Word of God. This is the book for spiritual success in how we dress. So what do we need to change? You know, our spiritual life is far more important than the color of my socks were back then. And don't just wear what's comfortable. Wear what's Christ-like. Some of these attitudes are comfortable. Well, I've done it a lot. But it's not Christ-like. You know, I mentioned a while back we had our grandkids with us for uh, 10 days this summer in July and when they stayed with us. And, and sometimes they needed help getting dressed. And sometimes we would offer to help and they, no, I can do it myself. <laughs> and sometimes that had better results than others. <laughs> Sometimes it was a nice try. Let's try again. And, and you expect that with children because as they mature, you want them to grow where they can dress themselves. And you encourage them in that. But it's also not wrong to ask for help when we need it. And the same is true in our spiritual life. So let me ask you, can you get spiritually dressed by yourself? It's not wrong to ask for help if you need it. But we need to be putting off these things that are listed here and putting on the new life. Because the new life that comes because of our salvation is seen practically in our relationship with one another in the church. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How are we doing in being spiritually dressed for success this morning? And if you haven't come to Christ, today is the day of salvation. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and the practical areas where we can examine how we need to change and grow that we would be like Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we prayed at the beginning of this message that we would apply your word to our lives that we would not simply be hearers, but that we would strive to take time to be holy. That we 
through our salvation, having the righteousness of Christ, would then strive to put off the, the garments that are associated with our former manner of living, that we, that we would look like Christ, that we would look to Him for our spiritual fashion sense. Lord, I pray that if there's one here that does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would understand that today is that day of salvation and that they would come to Christ alone for their salvation. With heads bowed and eyes closed, before we stand for our invitation hymn, I'd like to ask, as I do on a Sunday morning, I wonder if you're here and say, you know, I'm not sure that I've ever trusted Christ as my Savior. I can't say that I have that life with Him. Say, I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I know I don't want to go to hell. Pray for me. I would like to know the hope that there is in Christ alone. If you'd say that, I'd like to remember you in prayer. If you would say, I'm not sure that I'm saved, that I've trusted Christ, pray for me. Would you quietly slip up your hand? I will acknowledge I see it, and I will pray for you, but I will not embarrass you. I will not single you out. wonder if there's somebody say, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Pray for me. Is there anyone like that? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Christians, let me ask you, how are you doing? When you look at your spiritual wardrobe, are there things that need to be put off and others that need to be put on? I've sought to give God's Word clearly, practically, compassionately where we live, but where is the Holy Spirit applied to you? If the Holy Spirit has convicted you or spoken to your life in the quiet of this moment, would you talk with Him? If there's sin that you need to confess, would you confess it? Would you commit to deal with problems in an honor, a way that honors the Lord and to do it quickly, not allowing the sun to go down on our wrath, that we will not give Satan a foothold, but that we would know the joy of Christ? Would you talk to the Lord in the quiet of this moment? Lord, we thank you for the clarity and practicality of your word. We pray that we would have heard Christ through the word, that we would learn Christ, and that we would live for Christ. Pray that you'd work in the heart of this one that is uncertain about their eternal destiny, that that even today they would speak with somebody here that can help them see from your word how they can have the assurance of a relationship with you because of Christ alone. And pray that you'd help us as believers to daily examine ourselves to see if we're putting off and putting on because we have a change of mind and being renewed in the spirit of your word. Work in our hearts. We thank you for the unity that we have here at Tri-City Baptist Church. We pray that we would guard it in the bond of peacefulness through the power of your spirit. Amen.